What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? Hero Bread serves up 0 to 1 grams of net carbs, 5 to 11 grams of protein, and high fiber in every delicious serving. Made with natural ingredients, Hero Bread supports gut health, promotes weight management, and helps maintain blood sugar. Hero also drops other limited edition ultra-low net carb goodies like rich, flaky croissants and buttery brioche slider rolls. Head to Hero.co to shop today. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to We've Got Mail! (laughs) That was a very strange introduction, William. That's what I do. (laughs) You host a few thousand podcasts and you start getting bored. You want to like mix it up a little bit. Yeah, Yeah, that's fine. Shake off the cobwebs. This this is our letters podcast. My name is William Bibiani. I am a critic. Everybody calls me Bibbs. My name is Whitney Seibold. I too am a critic. Uh, I I write for Slash Film. I don't have a nickname. I guess for this podcast, I do Mm. have a nickname. Yes, you always forget. Uh, You can call me Rockmeister McCool. Yes, and I write for The Rap and uh, uh, sometimes Consequence. And we are here today to answer your correspondence. That's right. Mm. This is We've Got Mail. This is where you control the conversation right here at Critically Acclaimed. Here's how it works. You send us correspondence. You have two options. You could either send us an email. Our email address is letters at criticallyacclaimed.net or if you'd prefer you can send us a piece of physical mail. Mail you can touch. And uh, you can send that to a P.O. box that Whitney remembers and I don't. <laughs> yeah, we have we actually have a letter. You can read it off the envelope. No, it's, that's... It's, it's written to us. That, it's that's, right there. That's, that's, it's that's the, four feet away and, and I need new glasses. It's the Critically Acclaimed Network. Uh, P.O. Box 641565, Los Angeles, California, 90064. Yeah. And uh, yeah, we have a letter and we always like to start with whatever's actually yeah, we, in the P.O. box. You can hear it crinkling. I like to crinkle the letters to let, let people know that this is an actual piece of mail yes i'm going to extract it from the envelope thrills it's it's one of those short envelopes too it's all uh, fancy especially uh piece of paper here so uh dear azathoth and dagon (laughs) (laughs) dibs on azathoth uh yeah yeah uh that's what i say um since Halloween is upon us, we are recording this in the month of October, um, what are some horror films made in Mexico oh. from Mexican studios Ooh. that you re- may recommend to your listeners from the golden age of cinema to today? Uh, if that's untouched territory, it's all good, amigos. Uh, also recently, I've been on a 70s Shaolin Kung Fu kick. I don't know Ooh. about Whitney, but to Bibbs, you're, you're the expert in the I Kung love Fu Kung movies. Fu movies. Uh, here's a list of Shaolin Kung Fu films I've recently recently watched on Prime Video. Mm. What are your top five from this list? Okay. And what film techniques slash scenes Hollywood took inspiration from? Oh, okay. That's uh, interesting. Number one, Five Fingers of Death, 1972. Classic. Uh, by uh, Chung Hua Jung. Mm-hmm. Number two, The Hand of Death, 1976, with a young Jackie Chan directed by John Woo. Uh, I don't think I know that one, actually. Hand of Death, all right. That's cool. Uh, number three, Shaolin Temple, 1976, directed by Che Chang. Great film. Uh, number four, Executioners of Shaolin, 1977, yes. uh, directed by Sheng Lang Yu. Uh, number five, Shaolin Kung Fu Mystagogue, Ooh. 1977, directed by Peng Yi Cheng. I have, I've never I'm, heard of that movie. I don't movie. think I've seen that one, but I might have. The name's not ringing a bell, but it Shaolin sounds kind Kung of Shaolin Kung Fu Mystagogue. Yeah. Uh, number six, Crippled Avengers or The Return of the Five Deadly Venoms, 1978, also ah, yes. by Che Chang. That, that, the trailer for that used to be in front of my VHS of Evil Dead 2 that I bought. Oh, no kidding. Yeah, oh, so I, I saw the trailer that. for that many times. Yeah. But that, that's an experience the kids these days, they don't get to have mm. the idea of seeing the same trailers over and over, over again. Over and over movie. again. Yeah, they become part of you, yeah. Uh, um, 
Number seven, The 36th Chamber of Shaolin, 1978, directed by Chia Lang Liu. Uh, Number eight, Two Great Cavaliers, 1978. That's Mm. another one I don't know. Uh, Directed by Ching Cheng Yang. And number nine, Five Pattern Dragon Claws, 1983, directed by Shi Hyung Kim. I might have seen that one. I might might have Mm. to look that one up to know for certain. Uh, but there's some really good yeah, movies in there. Uh, and that just says, signing off from the Mountains of Madness, Anthony Ray Jimenez. Uh, Anthony, uh, thank, well, thank you, you so Anthony. much. Uh, uh, so you, oh, let, me, let me hand you the letter so you thank can look you. over the list. Be a little, be a little more efficient that way. Um, to answer your first question, I'm not super well-versed in Mexican horror. There is one Mexican horror film I love. Uh-huh. I think it's really, really great. Super creepy, and I discovered this... Um, Actually, only like a year or two ago, it is a 1961 film uh, from Benito Alazraki called "The Curse of the Dull People," um, and it's uh, it's got kind of um, uh, Night of the Demon kind of vibe. A bunch of people like stole a mystical artifact, and now they're cursed. But the curse gets them uh, attacked by uh, creatures which uh, have like very creepy masks, and it's. One of those movies where everyone kind of deserves what they get <laughs> uh, until they don't, and um, the, it's just very atmospheric. It's very very creepy, and it concludes in like a little bit more of a satanic Lovecraftian way than I kind of expected it to. Um, it really just kept me kind of surprised and guessing, and it's got that like perfect uh, 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 kind of nexus between genuinely classy great horror movie and also. It's a little cheap, and you have to use your imagination a smidge, but in that really good grindhouse way, where like you want to. Yeah. So, I, if you've never seen it, it's really, really cool. I like it a lot. Um, I would, rec- I would recommend right. it. Um, uh, Mexican horror film. I, I saw a few uh, pretty good ones in in recent years. Um, mm. Tigers are not afraid. As a Mexican oh, I heard that was film. Great. That's a really good one. It's about. Yeah. Um, uh, young girl's mother goes just dis- like disappears there's you know an evil mm. presence out there and um it, it's a lot of it is uh very reminiscent of uh other other films about kids living on the street yeah uh so like los olvidados is in there uh, pichota is in there um uh, you know, Lynn Ramsey's Ratcatcher is in there, uh, but it has like kind of this aggressive uh, vibe to it that I actually really really like. Hmm. Um, that that one came out uh, kind of recently. I'm a big fan of. Uh, You'll know. I was going to say this. Uh, El Santo movies, like yes, the old, Luch- the old, the old Luchador films, are excellent. Yeah, and um, there's a couple of them where he fights monsters. Yeah, like proper yeah. old school monsters. The first Santa movie I ever saw, you fought Dracula and the Wolfman. I think uh, one of the best ones is uh, Santo y Blue Demon. Contra los monstruos. I think that's uh, the one monstruos. I saw. I'm, I'm yeah. 98% uh, sure that's the one I saw. Yeah. Santo and the Blue Demon versus the monsters. And, uh, yeah. yeah, it Dracula and a mummy and a Frankenstein. Frankenstein with an awesome mustache. Mm-hmm. Uh, the mummy is completely ineffectual. It kind of wanders around and does not <laughs> wrestle at all. Uh, and, uh, yeah, Santo and Blue Demon uh, team up to fight him and wrestle him. And there's wonderful scenes of like all the monsters lined up in an old lab with electrodes on their brains. It's like somebody pulled images out of my brain when I was eight and put them in this movie long before I was born. Uh, let's, let me look up some other, uh, like actual Mexican horror movies. Um, I, I know there's a really famous one called just El Vampiro from the 1950s, where we got a lot of sort of Dracula iconography in the United States. 
Um, it's one I saw on TV a long time ago, so mm-hmm. I can't can't really uh, speak to how great it is. Another one I love it's it's well known. So again, this is not my field of expertise specifically Mexican cinema, which I need to really work on that because it's wonderful. Mm-hmm. Every it's, I always say that it's wonderful. Um, is uh, Guillermo del Toro's Chronos is a Mexican film? Yeah, and that movie is one of the more honestly, it's one of his best movies still. It's just a very poetic yeah. vampire movie. I find his. Uh, he hasn't made enough, but I found his Spanish language films to be more interesting. I yeah. feel like he's I feel like he's making them for a different version of himself. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. The, the the his English language films tend to be genre exercises, yeah, broad entertainments. Yeah, a lot of the like time. not always, but I, a I'm lot. I'm going to make time. a monster film. I'm going to make a ha- hammer film. You know, and I'm going to make those, a giant robot movie. And yeah, they're fun. Those are less interesting mm-hmm. than the ones where he actually has like something to say, and I feel like. Yeah. He has the most to say in a Spanish language film. So Cronus so far, is one, yeah. uh, yeah. Pan's Labyrinth, and The Devil's Backbone are all are his best movies. Yeah, um, I'm, I'm not sure if all of those are considered technically Mexican. The, no, movies. So, I know Cronos is. But uh, yeah. Pan's Labyrinth and uh, and uh, Devil's Backbone, I think, are Spanish productions. Yeah, but Cronos is a Mexican production. Yeah. So uh, the, yeah, that one definitely counts. Um, same with uh, Santa Sangre. Mm-hmm. The uh, uh, Jodorowsky movie. If you haven't seen Santa Sangre, definitely see that one. That one's. Uh, hard-edged it's sort of like a, a slightly more surreal version of psycho there's a lot of parallels between the two mm-hmm. movies but I, I i like uh just jodorowsky's oddness um gosh that that's all i can really think of off, off the top of my head i'd really have to delve into sort of the yeah we, we don't we don't really research these ahead of time we like to have yeah. them kind of spur the moment and spontaneous and for stuff like this it really does mm-hmm. test us um but yeah oh, of course renee cardona <laughs> How could I forget Rene oh, Cardona's yeah. uh, filmography? Um, you know Rene Cardona from uh, Night of the Bloody Apes? Ah, who could forget and, Night of the Bloody Apes? And most importantly, Santa Claus. Yes, I don't which, think... I guess that's kind of a horror movie. It's got the devil in it. It's, it's got the devil. It's I mean, kind of terrifying. Uh, there's a lot of really terrifying imagery <laughs> in, the, in the Mexican Santa Claus movie. Hmm. Uh, but that's not, I don't think that's typical of the show. No, I it's not. I think that's just us pointing out an MST3K episode. Uh, but regarding the second half of the email, yeah, I know that's more my expertise than, than it is Whitney's. Um, I love a good uh, 1970s kung fu film. Um, 1970s kung fu movies were introduced to me uh, from a writer and uh, film critic named Rick Myers, mm. uh, who is who has written many of the more scholarly uh, Western works on the subject. And he used to host... Uh, Kung Fu Night every year at Comic-Con. He might still. I, I didn't go to the last few Comic-Cons, so I just don't know. Um, and he's written extensively about how in the 1970s, for example, this is how he likes to introduce it to people, and I think it's a good sort of entryway, uh, is in the 1970s, he was saying there are there have never been any good superhero movies. And by the 70s, there kind of had, and like maybe Batman the movie, but not many. Yeah, um, like, Superman was... Not until 78. We hadn't, had a, we hadn't had a Superman feature. I mean, there was Zorro, but we hadn't had a Zorro movie in decades by that mm. point. And uh, he was saying, we hadn't had a good superhero movie. And someone, a friend of his, took him to Grindhouse Theaters in New York, mm. where they were showing Shaolin Kung Fu movies. And it was like, they're making them right now. Yeah. And looking at Shaolin Kung Fu movies from the 1970s and beyond, but there was a particular era, um, for, through the lens of superhero cinema, you really start to see just how wonderfully uh, uh, exciting and efficient they are in a lot mm-hmm. of ways. There, a lot of them are stories of oppression mm-hmm. uh, and uh, people who are being like pushed down by society. Like, uh, you know, the the government has like killed everyone in their temple, and they're using martial arts to mm-hmm. sort of bring back honor to their uh, 
um, to their school, that kind of thing. Or, uh, you know, Bruce Lee in Fist of Fury and how he's being, his whole school has been disrespected by uh, the Japanese uh, karate school and Bruce Lee uh, goes rogue to take them all down. And uh, Is that the one we watched, Fist of Fury? We did watch yeah, Fist of okay. Fury. Yeah, that's, that's, that's a movie, you didn't mention this in the email, but like, and that's not a Shaolin film, but uh, that's a movie that had a huge impact on the way action sequences were filmed afterwards. But, um, so, but I think the big, the big sort of uh, reason why, and and uh, one of the movies you mentioned actually, um, what was your version of it? You said Five Fingers of Death. Uh, I knew it. Uh, they, uh, these, these all had like yeah. alternate titles. Yeah, uh, I, uh, <clears throat> I I can say that archiving kung fu movies is a bear. Yeah, because uh, they've been released under so many different titles. Yeah, it's the. Um, Part of my job working at the New Beverly was going through a lot of old prints and identifying them. And sometimes you would you would have like missing opening credits. Oh yeah, you'd have to like sort of look up a, an actor you might recognize and find mm. out what their filmography is. And eventually, you could kind of there's also like edge codes like what year it was printed, so you could sure. kind of figure out what things these things were. And yeah, you look them up. They were released not only like with nine different titles internationally, mm. Mm. but often sequences that from these kung fu movies would be taken out of their source film mm-hmm. and edited together into a different film and released under a different title. Especially overseas, that would happen. Yeah, and yeah. then like uh, for even like Bruce Lee movies, for example, uh, Bruce Lee's first two like starring roles uh, were in um, uh, The Big Boss and Fist of Fury. Mm. When they came out in America. The movies were called Fist of Fury and the Chinese Connection, but instead of calling Fist of Fury Fist of Fury, they called that one the Chinese Connection and called the Big Boss Fist of Fury. That's not confusing at all. How the hell are we supposed to work with that? It's a pain in the butt. Um, but it, I, I bring this up because I originally saw Five Fingers of Death as King Boxer, which is how it was released in America in the 1970s in an uh, American dub. And that was that's credited as the film that actually brought kung fu movies to popularity in America in those grindhouse cinemas. That's This was the kind of the break-in movie. And okay. I think one of the reasons why it was uh, really connecting is because it was actually not dissimilar style-wise in a lot of ways uh, from the exploitation boom mm-hmm. of the time. There was a lot of extremely uh, empowering... Uh, but also very, uh, sometimes very arch hmm. uh, genre storytelling that was really hitting a big audience at the time. And those are great movies. I, I haven't seen every single one you said, as I mentioned. I- I'm a big, big fan of Five Fingers of Death. It's great. Uh, I recommend, I don't, know if, I don't know if all these are on Amazon, but a good double feature with that is Boxer from Shantung, uh, which hmm. ends in like this... Ch- giant fight like guys got axes like hanging out of his body but he's still fighting people like it's so fucking cool um that one's really great Shaolin Temple is excellent uh I did an episode of a wonderful podcast called Kicking and Screaming uh, if you've never heard it you should uh they do double features of horror movies and kung fu movies and try to find interesting parallels uh and um we did a double feature of Executioners from Shaolin and David Gordon Green's Halloween uh, because they're both actually generational stories. Okay. Um, and uh, Exorcism Shaolin is about uh, a group of uh, Shaolin uh, masters, uh, and their temple is killed. They're, everyone's killed by Pai Mai, the, the character from Kill Bill Volume 2. That's an actual character. Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. And um, that Quentin Tarantino didn't make that character up. He just took mm-hmm. it. Um, and, <laughs> he paid homage. Sure. <laughs> Whatever you say, uh, but uh, it's about uh, you know the, this person who does uh, who fights in tiger style uh, 
is vows to do one day avenge uh, his temple from Pai Mai. Uh, he marries uh, a woman who's an expert in crane style, and they end up having uh he's not able to save the day but maybe their child will but their child is like a perfect fusion of their identities and their martial arts styles so in addition to combining their martial arts styles tiger claw and crane style he's also a combination of their genders oh okay and as and so it's actually kind of like an early very interesting queer kung fu film in a lot of ways oh cool um they don't talk about it in the terms that we would know it today but it's in there and it's really really neat so i love that movie to pieces and 36 chamber of shaolin is one of the great movies about kung fu training Mm -hmm. which is really important to any like movie that is some would argue that the a a quote-unquote true kung fu movie is about kung fu not just people who do martial arts it has yeah. to be about the art of kung fu, about the, the, the people the, who are actually trained experts, and that's yeah. part of the story. Exactly, and and there's you, that that might be splitting hairs, but it's definitely one of the subgenres of kung fu movies. Is kung fu movies that are explicitly about learning and, and mastering and gaining enlightenment mm-hmm. through kung fu. And uh, Thirty Six Chamber is about a a young man who uh, runs off to a Shaolin temple, uh, hoping to learn martial arts so that he can come back. And fight depression in the town where he grew up in. Uh, and over the course of many years, he works his way through one training chamber after another. And I'm not going to say what the 36th chamber is, but it's very, very important. A um, lot of great martial arts training culminates in a lot of cool action. The sequel is amazing, and you should see the sequel because it's weird. Gordon Liu played the protagonist in the 36th chamber. Gordon Liu does not play the same character in 36 Chamber, or sorry, Return to 36 Chamber. He plays the new protagonist, and a new actor plays his old character. So he can still be the lead. <laughs> it's really fucking weird. It's a little bit of ego going on yeah. there, I think. He's, he plays a con man in Return to 36 Chamber, uh, who is hired to impersonate his character from the first movie in order to protect a clothes-dyeing business. Like, they dye clothes different colors uh, from a gang that's, like, asking them for protection money. Uh, and when that backfires on him real, real bad, he runs off to the 36 Chambers uh, in order to learn martial arts he's not let in because he tries to con his way and they say you're not going to and in fact your punishment is you're going to build a scaffolding around the entire training area which is just gigantic (laughs) and while building the scaffolding he's watching all of them train and he learns a new form of martial arts he develops a new form of martial arts scaffolding kung fu and he uses scaffolding (laughs) to beat the guys it's a weird movie but it's really cool and it actually works I love it to pieces you have to see it it's great people don't talk about it as much as the original but uh, in any case thank you for writing in these are cool movies and I'm really really glad you watched them that's really amazing I've I've seen Precious Few I've I've yeah. Like the ones I've seen, I just haven't been moved to delve in. It's yeah. it's a pretty threatening world. It's pretty big. It's it's, it's, it's a, a lot to yeah. enter into, and having a guide really. really I I was I had Rick Myers's books, and I actually yeah. got to know him reasonably well. Uh, and yeah, he was he was really really great. Mm-hmm. But yeah, it's I would recommend any of his books. By the way, any All book right. he's written about martial arts movies is a pretty good starting point. Uh, and it's good to sort of um, he did a book actually. I might have it around here actually, <laughs> like he within arm's a, reach, <laughs> literally within arm's reach. Actually, I think I do. Hang on a second. It might be out of print now. Hold on. Ah. Oh my god. It really is. It's just stacked on a chair next to William. That's great. He wrote a a book called Great Martial Arts Movies. And what I love about this book... Yeah, what I love about this book is, one, it's actually a pretty decent history of martial arts movies from Mm. the major filmmakers, the major stars. You get a lot of history of not just their movies, but the lives of Bruce Lee and Jackie Chan. 
excuse me, a lot of other, uh, a lot of samurai films are in there as well. Uh, it's got a great collection of uh, recommendations, which is a little outdated now because it's been like at least 10, mm-hmm. 20 years since that book came out. Uh, but they're still highly recommended films. A lot of them are older. But they also have like detailed explanations of stuff that might be a little mm-hmm. uh, uh, impenetrable if or you're coming a, at it completely from the outside. A, a full page 8x10 glossy of Michelle Yeoh from like the 80s. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's a good time to be Michelle Yeoh. It's always been a good time to be Michelle Yeoh. Uh, but uh, there's also like a lot of like detail in that book about like when they talk about different martial arts styles, here's what that means. Here's the difference. Here's how you can recognize them when they're being used. And that's really useful. That's a really, really great tool to have. So whether you read this book or come to that from other uh, uh, source, I highly recommend doing a little extra research when you're studying these uh, these types of movies because they have a lot of... you know, they're really steeped in a particular culture. And if you're not Mm -hmm. part of that culture, which I am not, I'm only getting so much... You know, I'm, I'm, I'm no expert, but... Uh, I because I've done some research, I get a lot more out of those movies. Oh, this so is really cool. It. Yeah, they even have like American actors who made uh, movies in China and Hong Kong. Yeah, uh, like so. Here's a, a photo of Cynthia Rothrock. There you go. Cynthia Rothrock made her career by making a lot of Chinese movies. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So uh, yeah. Anyway, I highly recommend doing a little bit of reading. Rick Myers is a great place to start. Not the end all be all, but it, it helped me get oh. my help me find my way in. Anyway, uh, let's move on. Thank you for the great right. letter. Um, I'll, I'll read another letter then. Uh, yeah. This is a letter from R. Clay Johnson. Hi, R. Clay. Uh, greetings, Bibbs and the Meister of Rock. I suppose that's me. Uh, uh, suck MCs better call me sire. Uh, this is a long letter. No apologies. Uh, last Good. year, you helped me prep for my podcast, The Academy, where we watched the best film from a specific year and discuss and choose what we would pick as the best picture. Last time we were doing 1994. As always, your suggestions were interesting and outside of the box, plus they were greatly appreciated. Unfortunately, the list was an aggregate, so not many of your picks made it to the final list, as uh. I would have liked. Uh, in case you're curious, I'm including our final list. Final list and ranking for 1994. Feel free to mention any of the films on the list. Just to leave out the rankings, as we had some fun and an interesting conversation, I would encourage people to check it out. So, yeah, we don't uh, want to ruin ranking the rankings. Free, that's the uh, this is just a, a, a list. Um, uh, Chunking Express. Great movie. I, which, I watched it for the first time recently. Yeah, I love that movie. Uh, Red, the Christoph Kieslowski movie. I haven't seen that in forever, but I loved it. Yeah, the, all yeah. three of those movies are excellent. Yeah. Uh, the Lion King. Can't, it's a very good film. Yeah. It's a very good film. I've I love it. It's I've only seen beautifully Favre, animated. You yeah. should really watch the original someday. Yeah. It's really excellent. I, I've, I've started a couple times. I've seen like the first 10 minutes of The Lion King. Oh, well, then you're set. Yeah. <laughs> well, notice I haven't said I've seen it. I'm not commenting on The Lion King. Uh, Ed Wood. Uh, excellent uh, Tim, film. Tim Burton's movie. Yep. Uh, the Shawshank Redemption. A very uh, good movie. I, I think it maybe gets a little more hype than it needs, but it's, yeah, it's, it's very well made. Good, just a good Hollywood movie. It's a solid drama, yeah. yeah. Uh, Heavenly Creatures. Uh, Great back, movie. Back when Peter Jackson was interesting. Um, oh, that's a little harsh, but kind of, yeah. <laughs> when his budgets were low, he was really interesting. When his budgets yeah. went up, less interesting. I think his first three Lord of the Rings movies were interesting, and then he got a lot less interesting. Uh, yeah. <laughs> he, he he also made a disappointing prequel trilogy. Um, yeah, he did. Uh, Heavenly Creatures, Pulp Fiction, no comment. Uh, uh, I yeah, I think it's great. All right, uh, yeah. Muriel's Wedding. Oh, that's, that's nice. That's nice. That I'm glad that one list. made on. Yeah, that it's was a... that was big back in the '90s. That, that was making like the video store circuit for a yeah, while. Yeah, that was uh, that was one of those um, uh, Australian rom coms that was like or, or just light comedies. That well, yeah. that's not that light actually. It's surprisingly um, there's a lot of intense stuff in there. Surprisingly yeah. emotionally dramatic. But uh, yeah, that was the movie that gave us like everyone introduced to Tony Collette. Yeah. Rachel Griffiths was in that oh, one. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. But like that was Tony Collette's big breakout role and it's yeah. really really great it's from the director who went on to do my best friend's wedding pj hogan and yeah. the best peter pan movie peter pan 
That's right. He, he did Peter, yeah. that Peter Pan. Yeah, yeah, he made some great films, that guy. Um, Mural's Wedding. Hoop Dreams. Yeah, I've never seen all of Hoop Dreams. Real? Oh, yeah, I know. Hunker down, watch I it. know, I really need to get to it. I know. Uh, Forrest Gump. And I'm not a, I, 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 I respect a, it on a technical level, but I'm not a huge fan of the story. I, I suppose so. I think it's mawkish, sentimental, uh, boomer nostalgia. But I don't disagree. Uh uh, they they remade it this year. I it's heard a remake. You uh, actually it, you said it was better than the original. It's better. Yeah, uh, uh, they, they did a Bollywood remake called Lal Singh Chada, which is uh, update like updates the timeline a little bit and mm. sets it in India. Right. And so they they changed all of the Americana to in India. Kano. Right. I don't know what the the word. They, the I don't know what the comparable word is. Word is but um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, the last seduction. Ooh, I forgot that came out that year. That's a great. That's a great one. <laughs> I've seen the last seduction. Oh, Linda. I remember there was a big Oscar controversy because everyone was like, Linda, Linda Fiorentino is going to get nominated, and then they found out that because it had aired like briefly on television in like some European country, it was ineligible. Oh, and I'm like, fuck sense. you. That's yeah, not the spirit right. of the thing. Uh, quiz show, the Robert Redford movie. No one uh, talks about that as often as the others. That movie is great. Yeah. Movie's real, I think about it's, that movie a lot. It's very well crafted. It's, yeah, it's quiet. It's mature. Really like interesting going. chapter uh, of TV history. Yeah. Satan Tango. I haven't seen it. I, I haven't. I haven't seen. All, I've seen bits of it. Okay. It, I haven't. Haven't had the courage to really belly up to Satan because it's seven and a half hours. It's long. a long film. Uh, but it's a long um, film. It, it, and it also has like you know notable scenes of like animal torture and stuff oh, like there's, there's, some, there's some rough stuff in it I um, have no interest it's, in it's they don't actually torture animals well some there are movies know. I've seen movies where sadly they did yeah so um, like you tell me you, you that might be a concern so okay but I'm glad there, I'm glad to hear that they didn't That's there's a, a rather dark scene in Satan Tango with a cat with a kitten oh. and it looks very real but uh, mm. it, it, it is not it is not um Hard but pass. If, All right, if moving that, on. If that looks like if that sounds I'm like it's not gonna be hard gonna, to watch. I have no interest in. The, you right, know what? Let's uh, move on. Four weddings and a funeral. Yeah, uh, very good film. And, Love that movie. And bafflingly, North. Uh, okay, and, that's, and a, that's a, a bold. North is on the list. Hosts got to pick, and one of them is the fun type of troll. Uh, All right, so just sort of. You know, I've never actually to get people's sat attention through on all of North, North because it's hard to. <laughs> <laughs> Not because it's like, oh, I never quite got around to it. I, I, or like, I caught a few minutes bad. on TV, but I didn't want to start in the middle. It's like, no, that's not very good. All right. Uh, anyway, we are in the early stages of planning the next installment of the, the Academy. And okay. this time we are doing 1930. Okay. Uh, jumping back a little bit. Uh, compiling the list is going to be a bit trickier this time as we're going to have uh, factor in availability. Yeah. Also, the last you know. time, yeah, ni- films from 94 are probably easier to find. Oh, much easier, um, I'm sure. Also, the last time I automatically automatically included the Best Picture nominees. However, as you know, during this time, the Academy Awards were a combination of the two years between mm. 29 and 30, yeah, 30, tricky. 31 ceremonies, and only three of the nominees were from 1930 proper yeah needless to say we're going we are open to suggestions so not counting the three oscar nominees uh-huh. all quiet on the western front yeah the divorcee and the big house those good, are all good choices those yeah are all really good give me films. your five best suggestions for okay. the best films of 1930 and uh while you're looking that up I'll yeah I'm gonna, i got it um yeah and now it's time for a plug, uh, as if the entire letter hasn't already been one. I recently launched my Patreon page, patreon.com slash theflyingcow. Hey, congratulations. Uh, both my podcast and YouTube channel are called The Flying Cow. Much like you guys, I have a variety of different podcasts, though much less often. There's our Disney podcast, 
Discussions, mm-hmm. Nostalgia Cow, where we re-examine entertainment from our childhood, Blind Spots, myself and a guest introduce each other to films we haven't seen, The Academy, of course, and my Disney Pixar movie trivia show, Movie Battles. Also, I'm announcing their, uh, here, our Patreon-exclusive podcast, a review of all the earnest films called Around the Worrell. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I wish I'd thought of Around, that. Uh, That's good. Around the Worrell, colon, an earnest podcast. That's all really quite good, yeah. actually. Damn it, that's a good one. <laughs> that's legitimately a good one. I would encourage one. everyone to check oh it out and God. spread the word. Patreon.com slash the flying cat. Damn it. That, you stole a good one. That's a good Around one. Around the world. Uh, oh, you did good. Uh, will it be done in 80 days? Uh, yeah. Thank you both for help uh, for the ability to plug this on here. I would love for you to... Uh, Love to have you both as guests on my shows, schedules permitting, so expect an invite soon. You have uh, no idea how much the two of you have inspired me. Thanks for all you do. R. Clay Johnson. Thank you AKA so much. AKA The Flying Cow. Thank you so much, and thank yeah. you for your support. Um, uh, let me look and please, and please check out that Patreon. Do. Yeah, yeah please, just, just yeah. Look, look at it. Uh, R. Clay is doing some interesting stuff, and I appreciate uh, the deep dives through classic cinema and also through what some might call schlock cinema, like mm-hmm. the Werner's P. Worrell stuff. Those worlds are more interconnected than we care to admit. So I'm yeah, really yeah. happy when people manage to not just do one, but manage to actually mm-hmm. get a larger gamut of uh, 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 film appreciation in their work. Yeah. Uh, some people like hyper-focus, and that's okay, but I always appreciate it when larger contexts are provided, and I want to support that wherever I can. Uh, a yeah. couple of uh, films that come right to mind. Uh, Animal Crackers. The Marx Brothers movie. Oh, that's great. Yeah, definitely include it. The early Marx Brothers films are all pretty great. Yeah, they, and they, they trickle an off after a while. Anything yeah. with an animal in the title, you can't go wrong. Pretty like, much. Duck, duck soup, horse feathers, monkey business, uh, and, animal, and crackers. animal crackers. Yeah, those, those are all pretty good. Great. Once they start getting into the um, Night in Casablanca phase, they're mm, they start losing when, their the material starts getting yeah, not well, as not as um, polished. We, weirdly, when Zeppo and Zeppo was like kind of mm-hmm. the non-entity of the Marx Brothers, he was the straight man. Mm-hmm. He was like the the lover and. Uh, weirdly when he he didn't contribute a lot comedically but i think his presence really helped uh that there was sort mm. of like a straight man in the group so when yeah. he left i mean harpo zeppo and chico or harpo uh groucho and chico were equally funny their stuff is really mm-hmm. still really great but, but they didn't yeah, have that sort of yeah, person sort of to bounce s- off something of. a little missing um yeah yeah. Um, see, looking, so looking there's a lot of things. movies in the 1930s that I either haven't seen in a long specifically time. Specifically 30. Yeah, I meant, sorry. Yeah. yeah, specifically 1930 that I haven't seen in a long time. And so I'm going to sort of recommend them to you, but I'm not going to go into any great detail about it because I don't want to misremember anything. But I can remember like how they made me feel. Uh, the Big Trail is uh, probably like the first big John Wayne movie. Okay. Uh, and, you know, John Wayne's an asshole. But he's been in some good <laughs> movies. Much so, he's yeah. been in some good movies, and The Big Trail was like kind of one of the films that kind of kicked westerns into high gear in the sound era. Uh, so that's probably mm-hmm. worth checking out. Um, um, Ninochka. That was 1939. Oh, was it? Oh, no, Unless it was a remake. Oh, uh, excuse me. No, I was misreading. Um, Lodge Door. I was about to recommend yeah. Lodge Door. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. The Age of Gold. That's a, a Bunuel film, a surrealist film that he made mm. right after Unchen uh, Andalou. And it's you know ju- similar surrealist imagery and just a lot of really great stuff in that. Difficult to synopsize because it's really just like a, a litany of images. Mm-hmm. Uh, Josef von Sternberg's The Blue Angel came out in 1930. Uh, Here's an interesting film, and if you've ever seen the movie The Aviator, you've, like, seen Martin Scorsese recreate its creation. Hell's Angels. 
Oh, yeah, yeah. Hell's Angels is a very cool um, aerial dogfighting movie where they actually put a bunch of planes in the air, much like they did for Top Gun Maverick. You didn't invent shit, Tom Cruise. <laughs> They've been doing that since 1930. Technically, since earlier, since Hell's Angels was reshot when sound was created. Uh, and uh, the dialogue scenes were directed by James Whale. That's right. Yeah, who directed Frankenstein and The Invisible Man and Bride of Frankenstein and Showboat, one of the greatest filmmakers ever. Mm. Uh, so that's a cool movie, and you should totally check that out. And if you want to get, you know, you can either read up on the backstory, but The Aviator does a fun job of visualizing a lot of it. It's a really cool movie. I love that movie. Uh, let's see yeah. here. Alfred Hitchcock did a movie in 1930 called Murder. Murder! Exclamation point. Murder! Um, here, here's one I've seen that I, you know, I, mm. I watched this one in, in uh, film school. Um, it's called Light Spill. Uh, it's, I don't just, know it's just like an experimental short. It's like a lot yeah. of abstract shapes. Um, uh, mm. Let me look up the filmmaker. Laszlo Maholi Nagy is the name of the filmmaker. Uh, right. So yeah, this this was 1930. They were still doing a lot of really like bold, interesting experiments, like mm. trying out what film could do. And there's yeah. a lot of really interesting work being done. In there. And uh, trying out what what sound can do. Uh, yeah, because that was still pretty new. Uh, did, didn't Cocteau do a movie in 1930? Uh, Blood of the Poet. The Blood oh, of a blood, Poet. The Blood of a Poet. Oh, yeah. definitely see The Blood of a Poet. Yeah, yeah. that's that's great. The first part of the Orphic trilogy. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, that that's... Uh, yeah, just these sort of like abstract musings of Jean Cocteau where he's sort of like uh, figuring out like a lot of what uh, like angel iconography and a lot of queer iconography and what like special effects could do. And he creates like a lot of really interesting dream sequences. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, definitely, definitely see that one. I haven't seen Madame Satan. I've seen clips of it. Mm. Uh, that's the Cecil B. DeMille's movie where uh, this woman dresses up as the devil to like reseduce her straying husband. Um, mm. Let's see what else we got here. Yeah, uh, yeah. I, I can't... Uh, yeah, sadly, I'm not really like this is not, not this a lot is of not my caught in 1930. Other than the ones you mentioned, yeah, yeah, the, the Big House, the Divorcee, and, and All Quiet on the Western Front. All Quiet on the Western Front is one of the best movies ever, ever. Just period. Yeah. Just it's one of the greatest movies ever produced, and it's still as potent today. It, it's it's been said that every that there are no anti-war movies. That once you start putting war on camera, you can't help but sort of, if not romanticize it, at least sort of uh, indulge in its grandeur or uh, melodrama it's it's so dramatic and so full of action that Mm. no matter how you depict it it's going to be just by default kind of exciting yeah yeah. that's can be seen as a as an advocacy if there was ever an anti-war movie it's all quiet on the western front and it's not i mean it has an agenda obviously because war is shit Mm. uh but it makes its point so beautifully and it's so harrowing and feels very real and it feels really uncompromised too you'd, you'd think in like the 1930s even pre-code oh they can't really make it that intense yeah they can <laughs> that movie is intense mm. so um yeah so hopefully that gives you a place to go do you have any, any anything else uh, come to mind before i, we I move was on? trying to th- look up like uh walt disney animated short films from about that time because oh, I, I, yeah. I liked when some of the things that came out of the 1930s mm-hmm. um like, uh, uh, I works was doing like all of his work mm. like at, at around that time. There's, uh, I think, Barnyard Dance was a, a pretty famous one. Okay. Uh, the Picnic was a pretty famous one. Mm-hmm. Um, I think a lot of the more famous ones came out after 1930. Though, like, yeah. The old barn and that kind of, or the old mill and those sorts of things. Um, and and uh, Steamboat Willie was prior. What, what, what Steamboat mm. Willie was 29, right? Uh, I think it was a little. Yeah, it was around there. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Um, 
I feel like I, I'm not, I can't think of a specific Betty Boop short that was from that era, but if you're studying cinema of like early, like animated shorts, mm. Betty Boop is dramatically overlooked and really yeah, interesting yeah. what they were doing with Betty Boop compared to what Disney was doing. And a lot of people assume that's just because she was kind of sexualized and she was, but uh, it's not about that actually. And there's actually just really fascinating, beautiful animation work mm. uh, being well, done. Kind of, kind of strange and nightmare. Yeah, a lot of like, they, uh, there's um, like animated, they just rotoscoped Cab Calloway dancing and singing. Yeah, and it's yeah, yeah. glorious. <laughs> it's really, really great. Anyway, well, I think we should move on, but yeah. thank you very much for writing in. Hopefully that helps. And again, please check out his Patreon. Okay. Yeah. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? Hero Bread serves up 0 to 1 grams of net carbs, 5 to 11 grams of protein, and high fiber in every delicious serving. Made with natural ingredients, Hero Bread supports gut health, promotes weight management, and helps maintain blood sugar. Hero also drops other limited edition ultra-low net carb goodies like rich, flaky croissants and buttery brioche slider rolls. Head to Hero.co to shop today. Um, Here is a letter from uh, Lily. Okay. Hello, Hello, Lily. Lily. Uh, hey guys, I've only recently got into your show within the last month or so. Oh, oh hello, thank welcome. You, thank you for writing in. Uh, and have absolutely loved what I've heard. You two have such great chemistry in your conversations, and I find your podcast very useful for recommendations. Thank you. I tend to fall closer to Whitney's taste in art house and drama and bibs and genre films. I can respect uh, that. Well, you have excellent. You have excellent taste. You do uh, much better taste than mine. And uh, and have learned so many about so many great movies from you that I've previously never heard of. Uh, often my favorite films are the ones that almost completely shift genres and or tones halfway through. Oh, yeah. Do you have any recommendations for films like this? Oh. And while I love those that switch from a different genre to a horror thriller from mm-hmm. Dusk Till Dawn, Parasite, Audition, there are... Uh, are there any that have a different sort of flip, such as a comedy to a drama, mm. or one that suddenly reveals itself to be in a fantasy world? I'd love to hear about older films, too. I'm 17, mm. so I don't have much exposure to films before my parents were uh, before my parents were teenagers in the late 90s and early 2000s. Mm. Don't worry, you're not old. They just had me young. Uh, <laughs> well, also we're old. Uh, thank you so much for your time, Lily. Uh, pronouns he, him. Sorry for the confusion uh, with the name. All right, so no worries. He, him, Lily. Thank right. you. Lily. Well, nice to meet you, Lily. Thank you. Uh, thank you for writing in. Yeah, uh, that's that's an that's an interesting question. That is because so, a lot of movies are afraid to do that. Yeah. Well, I think a big issue uh, is modern marketing. Yeah. Uh, somebody has to construct a preview out of the footage you give them, and it's. Mm really difficult to sell a film that's going to switch genres. And I know you're probably going to bring it up. Uh, Wes Craven's Red Eye uh, is a great is, example. Is a notorious example. If you um, watch the first eh, 20, 30 minutes of Red Eye, it seems like a story about a very uh, very nice young woman played by, played by Rachel McAdams mm-hmm. who meets uh, a very hunky man uh, and they end up sitting next to each other on a plane ride and he's played by Killian Murphy. And... It seems for a bit like, oh, is this going to be like a nice romantic kind of movie where like we just follow them over a plane ride and mm-hmm. they talk and it's like before sunset. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And no, it no, is not. He, he kidnaps he, her in, kid, yeah, in the middle of a crowd and it's really tense and Hitchcockian. Mm-hmm. But the problem with that movie is that it, as interesting as it is, the audience can't have that experience of discovering it unless they just chance upon it on television mm-hmm. because they have to market it as a thriller. They have to reveal the twist because the twist is early enough in the movie that people would be 
maybe mad mm-hmm. if the fun romantic movie that they thought they were seeing turned into something really intense and bad for date night. Yeah, so like, uh, for, it's a trick. It's a tricky thing to do. Uh, j- just like uh, from Dust Till Dawn, the one you mentioned, mm-hmm. um, that uh, written by my boss, so I can't comment on the quality of the film, but sure. uh, the, uh, the film was... Uh, vampires show up unexpectedly. There's mm-hmm. no... Uh, prologue with vampires it's all just a crime story and then all of a sudden there are vampires yeah and uh in the previews there are the vampires they have to show them right away yeah because you want it's the selling point it's what makes people want to go see the movie Uh, but you're right a lot of the movies that do this are horror movies they're trying to lull you into a sense of mm -hmm. security and then they're trying to pull that away from you that's what psycho quite famously did it seems like it's a pretty standard hitchcockian that's sort of crime point. movie yeah, about stealing money and yeah. the cops are trailing her and, and then yeah. something horrific happens mm-hmm. i don't want to ruin the movie audition for you if you haven't seen it but that also <laughs> reveals itself to be much darker mm-hmm. than you think it will a movie that comes to mind that isn't a horror movie and again it's harder to harder to find those is john woo's bullet in the head i haven't seen that one yeah it's not as well known over here. I don't even know if it even has like a proper good DVD release in America. I had an yeah, import well, we, DVD. We have a cinephile video up the street yeah. and they have a copy. We but, do, yeah. but not everyone has access to a sort of like cinephile. Well, but well, everyone needs to move within walking distance of cinephile. I respect then. that <laughs> and I think that's true. Uh, but um, in any case, John Woo did a film called Bullet in the Head. And at the time, John Woo uh, hadn't you know started making movies in America yet. And in Hong Kong, he was known for what came to be known as the gun-fu genre. These very balletic... Uh, macho melodramas full of cops and assassins and other people who use guns a lot and shoot them. And he made a lot of really, really good movies. And Bullet in the Head starts out as one of those. And then the Vietnam War happens. And it kind of turns into John Woo's The Deer Hunter. Which, by the way, The Deer Hunter is also a good example of this. Where we kind of got to know these characters like in like their regular lives, mm. and then the war happens and it changes everybody. Yeah, and the whole movie changes completely. Uh, the Deer Hunter, the first half of that movie is one wedding, yeah, like the, just a the, small um, town, everyone in town at a wedding. It's at least an hour of like a two and a half hour movie. It, it's it's exactly fifty minutes. Yeah, <laughs> it's, uh, just getting to know the characters and spending time at the wedding, yeah. and, it has and then to do boom, with the rest of the Vietnam movie. War. Yeah, and we're right in the middle of it, and it's really traumatizing. Mm-hmm. And that's a that's a controversial film because its depiction of the Vietnam War isn't it it, it it's emotionally resonant, but it's not actually very accurate. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it it's a big change. <laughs> it's a big change. Yeah, yeah. Um, there are a lot of films that sort of switch genres by dint of their twist. And yeah. sometimes the twist is so wild, it's kind of fun to watch, even if it's a bad movie. Yeah. I'm thinking of Serenity here. Yeah, not the uh, not the sci-fi, uh, you know, space opera one. Yeah, not the one Nathan based on Fillion. Firefly. No, but, no, no. Uh, there's a movie with Matthew McConaughey, and we're not going to tell you what happened. I'm not going to tell you what the twist is, but there's a twist. And, and it you changes the movie quite a bit. No. <laughs> yeah, I'll be very impressed not, not if you do. not one of those do. things you can predict. Yeah. But yeah, the movie is, it's very dark actually it's a very dark crime drama it's, about, it's like the sleazy noir film yeah. about this uh, matthew mcconaughey's ex-wife comes into town with her new husband and he's abusive so and nice. she like wants him to 
kill her husband for like a and it's it's like a hundred million dollars. It's like it's some a lot of money. Amount of money. It's a lot yeah. of money. Yeah. So yeah, it's about you know whether or not he's going to kill the husband and you know how is he going to do it and who's in on this and he's also mm. having an affair with Diane Lane who's just sort of in the movie off to the side. Yeah. Um, and then, yeah, yeah then she's barely in the movie. Like it's a, no, kind of, it's no, a she's huge like, waste of Diane Lane, one of our <laughs> like great she's actors. Like, she's like in two just, scenes, poof. they just hire her for those two scenes. Yeah, uh, professional. She she you know played the part. Yeah, but yeah, then there's a twist, uh, and you, I I assure you, you won't see the twist coming. I would I would be shocked, and it's a. I'm not saying that movie is good, but. Boy, is it an experience. Hmm. It, it, it turns into something else, and that's it's kind of exciting to witness. It is a different <laughs> film. I'm trying to think of a film that does it well, though. Like something yeah. that's actually become... Uh, there is a, a, a murder mystery I, I remember liking called Identity. Oh, uh, that's which, an interesting choice. Uh, it's, it's sort of like... A, it's it's a riff on like old murder stories where yeah. a bunch of people are gathered in one place and they die one by one. It's, it's like an old dark house, except it's like a dilapidated motel. Yeah, it's like an old motel, yeah. and um, the true nature of like who the like who the characters are, how they're connected, and why they're all there at that motel will eventually be revealed. But it's not it's revealed like right at like right at the end of the second act. Like there's all mm. like all this introduction, and then all this mayhem starts to happen. And then there's a sort of big twist, and then there's another full active movie where we know the true nature of what's going on with these characters, like how they're connected, mm-hmm. and it the drama continues really well mm. after that. Even with everything recontextualized, it doesn't take away anything about how much we cared about those characters to begin with. It just changes, yeah, kind of recontextualizes the actions of the movie. Uh, and again, I have to be vague because I don't want to give away what the twist is. Yeah, well, that's the problem with talking about this in general is that yeah. some of these movies don't want you to know where they're going. Here's a movie that I don't think it matters that you know. Mm. Uh, and they're both war movies, but the movie kind of changes on a dime. That's Full Metal Jacket. Yeah. The first half of Full Metal Jacket is a drama about uh, people uh, going through boot camp hmm. uh, just before Vietnam or in yeah. the middle of Vietnam, I guess. And, um, and rather brutal conditioning. Oh, yeah. Uh, happening the in that movie. first half of that movie is super harrowing and only some of the characters continue into the second half. And the second half, we just cut ahead and now they're in the middle of, Viet- of the Vietnam War and their hmm. experiences there are very different. And it's been argued many times that the movie just feels like a completely different film, even though they're both Vietnam movies directed by Stanley Kubrick. Yeah. Uh, but I think it works. It's an interesting choice mm-hmm. that is being made throughout that film. Another film that doesn't change... These are, a lot of these are war movies, actually, too, which I never really thought <laughs> of before. Because a lot of these movies want to talk about like what it was like before the war and then the war hit, just to sort of create a dramatic contrast. Because sometimes if you're telling a movie about something you know really extreme, like a war... Uh, if you start in the middle of a war, well, that's where the movie introduced you to these events. And for the movie, that's status quo. Uh-huh. That's normal. So having like a longer prologue where things are completely different before dropping you into something really intense illustrates that this is not normal. This is abnormal. This is wrong. Uh, and a movie that does this, some would say very well, some would say it doesn't work at all. But I'm thinking of Roberto Benigni's Life is Beautiful, which starts off as a rom-com. Oh, it's set yeah, against uh, the backdrop yeah. of fascism on the rise uh, in uh, in Europe uh, just prior to World War II. And the protagonists of the movie are Jewish in the middle of a rom-com. And it's very, very sweet. There's some unfortunate backdrop stuff happening, but they're keeping their spirits alive and they're just trying to live their own lives. And then, boy, does that fucking movie change. And... Um, Again, some argue that that movie is great. 
I honestly don't even know how I feel about it anymore. It's been so long <laughs> since I watched it. I'm not sure it works, but by God, mm. is a change. Yeah. And it is a very calculated move, for better or worse. Hmm. Uh, yeah, there's there's a lot of movies. Um, I'm thinking of horror movies. Yeah. That are um, like set in prisons or asylums uh, mm. that. The horror kind of sneaks up on you. Well, the, the horror sneaks up on you, but because uh, we can't trust the protagonist's perceptions, we don't really know what is true and what might be hallucination, what oh, might yeah. be imagined. There's a lot of movies like that. Uh, Scorsese made one called Shutter Island. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, pl- yeah, plenty for, of others beyond. Yeah. Um, I'm tr- trying to think of like specific... Yeah, you're not sure if that's a murder mystery story or a horror story or what for yeah, a long yeah. time. But I feel like that's think, more like the Shutter movie Island being is... vague about its genre than it is. Yeah, I guess like, so. it, that's part of the mystery. You don't know what genre you're in mm-hmm. until the, re- the revelations occur yeah, in that I, movie. Uh, Shutter Island can be predicted. That's actually quite a cliched if you, movie. If you see, if you're on the right wavelength, you'll see where it's going. And if, yeah, you'll see, you, you see you, pretty early on Yeah, it's it's, it's not my favorite. It's actually yeah. weird Scorsese. It's actually weirdly, <laughs> like, pulpy Scorsese. Yeah, yeah. Even more so than something like Cape Fear. It's like... Mm-hmm. Mm, yeah. And yeah, I'm, I'm trying to think of something beyond, like, just a twist ending. Oh, what was that movie one. with the... Oh. Was it The Signal? With the guy who's, like, trapped oh, with in a room? with the legs? Yeah. All right. Uh, that's all I'm going to say. With yeah. the legs. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. It's called The Signal. Yeah. That movie changes a lot. Uh, yeah. It go, goes, that movie uh, goes in some it, weird fucking places. It starts out like almost as a found footage movie. Yeah. And then it, yeah, it turns into like something else entirely halfway yeah. through. There's another version of this that we don't talk about a lot, which is movies that change genres between movies, like in the sequel to the original. Mm. Like if you look at The Maze Runner. The Maze Runner is this kind of like it's a almost YA like, dystopian. Well, the, the first one's like a Twilight Zone episode. Yeah. A bunch of a bunch of teenagers wake up with no memories other than their names, and they're at the center of a gigantic labyrinth. Like the like the, the labyrinth wall, the walls, walls are, are 100, 100 feet tall. Yeah, like you cannot scale them. And they're like the size of the World Trade Center. Minotaurs. There's like monsters. Yeah, there's in monsters those. in there if you try to escape, and the the labyrinth closes every night, so you only have a day to get out or go back. And it's a it's a cool movie. I like that movie. Fine. It's a good. It's pretty ridiculous. But, but it's a good three ex- three and a half star genre film. They, they explain it all, and we don't need that. The, it's the, much much more fun if it's mysterious. The ending kind of throws it all together, and the explanation doesn't make any sense. But then you get to the next film, The Maze Runner, The Scorch, the Scorch Trials, Trials yeah. and then it's a totally different kind of movie. It's still like a pulp sci fi film, but it's a different breed, mm. and I actually think it's really cool. <laughs> I mean, uh, even if you want to go that far, uh, just talk yeah. about the uh, the sequels to Alien. Yeah, those uh, are dramatic. Well, those are all still horror movies, but still dramatically different. Uh, yeah. uh, Ridley Scott made this. It's almost like a haunted house picture. There's yeah. a monster loose on this space station or spaceship, and uh, mm. and yeah, these uh, people who are just miners. They're not you know warriors. Yeah, have to. Yeah, I think to more, they're more like truckers, really. Yeah, but yeah, yeah. they're uh, they have to uh, figure out what it is and mm. how to deal with it. And of course, it kills them off one by one. Uh, then James Cameron came in and did a, a sequel, a Aliens with a dollar sign, and uh, not really. No, uh, that was the pitch, though. That's, that's he, how I pitched it. Yeah, he he, he walked into a, into a boardroom. He wrote Aliens on a chalkboard or dry erase board. I wrote Alien, oh. and then he wrote an S at the end, Aliens. I'm like, oh shit! And then he drew a line through the S like a dollar sign, and that's the whole pitch. And it's like, bro, fucking vote. <laughs> that's some good drama right there. No, he, he, he's. He, He's confident, but it's earned. Uh, it's, he earned yeah. it. That movie's great. 
I'm not a biggest fan of, of James Cameron, but I kind of admire him. Um, you can't, you have to admire him. Yeah. I, think. I mean, like he's, um, he's like I'm really looking forward to that Avatar movie. I, I, I wasn't a huge fan of his first Avatar, but this next one's gonna blow us out of the. Water. I mean, I, I, I don't know. Go for uh, it. I look forward to it. I hope. I hope it's but, as cool. Uh, if it's a yeah, half as cool as James Cameron claims it is, mm. it'll be pretty cool. But yeah, I made Aliens, and that's mm. that's like action mayhem. It's a yeah. lot less horror in that one. Uh, and mm. then you get to uh, Alien. Three, which was David Fincher film, although he wouldn't admit it. Uh, yeah, he's the song that he, movie, he really, but it's yeah, a really very different vibe. Movie. But yeah, that's like a like a prison tragedy. It's like really downbeat yeah. and, and like has like a this weird spiritual dimension. It doesn't fall together well because it was like yeah. recut and rewritten while they were in production. But it's better than uh, it gets credit for. Yeah, like it's yeah. actually a very it's a very interesting take on it. Yeah, I, um, I feel like uh, uh, Jean Pierre Jeunet, uh, yeah. who did Alien Resurrection. Uh, Pretty much just riffed on aliens, but in this, this mm. sort of kooky French way. He just uh, wanted to make something goopy and weird. Yeah, and, it, and it's goopy and weird. So yeah, there you go. I, I like watching it. Fine. It's, yeah, it, yeah. It, it's a lot more like a like like cartoonish. Like it's a little broader than the previous movies. Yeah. Uh, then yeah, Ridley Scott came back. He made Prometheus, and that's this weird sort of like theological mystery movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, so yeah, th- those ones sort of rotate through. I I, I like how different they are. Yeah. Even if I don't like each individual piece, uh, we should move on. But I'm going to recommend one more, and if you've never, I'm going to recommend the original and the remake. They're both good, but they're basically the same movie, uh, and doesn't matter which one you see, as far as I'm concerned. They're they're basically the same experience, although there's some superficial similarities. Um, open your eyes or Vanilla Sky. Oh, there you go. That's another one where you're probably not going to see where that's going, mm-hmm. uh, and it does transform itself quite a lot and recontextualize a lot of what it was doing it's not so late in the movie that it's like a last minute twist and it's not so early that it feels like they're dramatically switching genres halfway through but it is a twist it is like Mm -hmm. a shift dramatically in how the movie is presenting itself and its events uh and i think it counts so i would recommend checking that out if you hadn't all right uh let's move on all right uh here's a letter from thomas Mm -hmm. hello thomas hi thomas Um, uh, good day, sound persons, William and Whitney. We are sound in our thinking. Uh, <laughs> I've been trying to catch up on uh, You've Got Mail and heard you talk about Australia's naughtiest video, the series that was canceled during its pilot. Yeah. We do <laughs> it's a, show a rather, called, no, rather notorious show. We do a show called Cancel Too Soon where we talk about shows that were canceled in one season or less. Mm. We've never done one that was canceled mid-episode before. Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's wild. Uh, but... Uh, says uh th- that was canceled during its inaugural episode we have one in the united states uh turn on was the creation of george schlatter of laugh-in fame for abc who wanted a laugh-in of their own the concept was that uh it was a show generated and hosted by a computer and starred such comedy luminaries as tim one of the five funniest men who ever walked on the earth conway tim conway's great mm-hmm. uh Teresa graves chuck mccann and albert brooks the half episode that aired used split screen and comic book style transitions uh, that was maybe too advanced for pop culture at the time. Hmm. Uh, only half of an episode aired with some stations ceasing broadcast after the first commercial break, roughly 10 minutes, and some West Coast stations electing not to air the show at all. When asked about this, Conway remarked that he learned about this during the show's premiere party, making it also the cancellation party. Oh, <laughs> what a sad day. Bummer. Two episodes were filmed. Only part of the first was aired, and I do not know if either episode is preserved for posterity. Oh, but I think I'm safe to say we here in America own the record when it comes to canceling shows the fastest. 
your pal, Thomas. <laughs> Thank you for that. I actually didn't know about that one. Albert Brooks wrote for that show. Yeah, he said Albert, no, that's, Albert Brooks. I, no, it's like it. Albert Brooks. I mean it. Like, Albert, like, wow, holy shit. Yeah, 1969. We will have to look into that because that's interesting. Uh, so thank you for letting us know about that. That's really, really cool. Yeah. All right, I think we have time for one more. All right, uh, here's a letter on Blonde. Do you want to talk about Blonde, uh, the, the Netflix movie? It was uh, an unpleasant experience, but yeah, let's, let's talk right, about Blonde. Uh, in your review of Blonde, there were comparisons made to a number of other films, but one comparison I made is to the film Spencer. We didn't bring up Spencer. Um, no, one, we didn't, actually. That's another downbeat film about, uh, bi- biographical film about mm-hmm. uh, the subject's life being overwhelmed by suffering. Uh, so yeah. I, I think that's the appropriate comparison. Uh-huh. I think including the opening title screen of Spencer in front of Blonde could have framed the film a little bit more uh, in the, of the context of the book it's based on, a fable from a true tragedy. Like Spencer, Blonde uses a real-life tragedy to tell a fictional story, and that's how the author of the source material describes the book, as a work of fiction, not biography. I didn't read any of the book. Um, mm. It's... Joyce Carol Oates. Joyce Carol Oates, almost an A.S. Blonde, yeah. yeah. Um, uh, This leads me to disagree with the point you made in your review, being that Blonde is a biopic. I don't believe it is. Mm. When talking about the film after watching it, I described it as a story about misogyny using the iconography of Marilyn Monroe, and I think the feelings of disgust, anger, and repulsion are intended. I'm not going to change your mind about the film, nor will I try to. I even agree with some of the points you made, that it's too long, it's overly indulgent. I believe this kind of framing of the film, or lack thereof, sets the film... uh, uh, up for the audience to frame the story rather than the filmmakers. I guess the logical question to follow is, what movies did a remarkably good or poor job of framing their story so you instantly know the intention, having no idea what you're watching? Uh, whether I agree with your review or not, I always enjoy listening. Keep up the great work. Um, yeah, so the point we were trying to make about Blonde, mm-hmm. which, again, came out last month, was on Netflix. It's a three-hour film about Marilyn Monroe mm-hmm. uh, from director Andrew Dominic, right? Yes. Um, and it's a deeply unpleasant film. Like, like ag- yeah. aggress- aggressively yeah. and pointedly. So. And, and to yeah. be fair, it is intending, it is intended to do that. Uh, but one could argue, and I think we both did, uh, that by framing this fictional story around the life of a real person... A person we know a lot about. Yes, and a person who is no longer around to defend themselves, uh, you are injecting your perspective into their life story. A lot of the people watching this movie aren't going to have a lot of books in their library dedicated to the real story of Marilyn Monroe. So when you don't just tell a chapter in her life, but tell her life story, like from childhood to the day she died, Mm. incorporating a lot of real life stuff that happened in a fictionalized dramatic way, because you don't know the exact words she said, Mm. To everybody, but, but, but that's so, expected for some a biopic. things that actually happen. Yeah, that, really. any biopic would do that. Mm. Um, then you are presenting a version of that person's life, and you are arguing that your perspective on that life has validity. Uh, in the case of Spencer, which arguably does a similar thing, uh, I don't think it's nearly as invasive. Mm. I don't think it's nearly as exploitative. As Blonde. Mm. I think it is comparatively incredibly tasteful. Uh, But regardless of taste, um, I don't think the point it makes about Princess Diana is nearly as gross as the point that Blonde makes uh, about Marilyn Monroe. They paint Marilyn Monroe not as, like, they they paint her as a perpetual victim, a sort of martyr for no particular cause. I I think we even compared it to the Stations of the Cross. It's just like... uh, 
little f- uh, snippets of her suffering. Uh, yeah, but Spencer's... the Stations of a Cross has a purpose, and I don't mm. think Blonde really does, other yeah, than to show suffering and uh, say that misogyny is real, which, yes, the, but what uh, are we doing with that? What I could tell from Blonde, and this isn't a point that I found incredibly dynamic, uh, mm. but the idea is that she was sort of being martyred mm-hmm. for uh, this sort of... This Hollywood machine, like she's sure. just being fed into the Hollywood machine. Like I said, it's not not a terribly sophisticated point, but that is a point. I don't, I don't know why we need three hours um, to make that. I point, feel like I... yeah, I feel like Spencer uh, was trying to uh, dissect the machinery of the the monarchy. Yes, and how this uh, high, very uh, hermetically sealed, uh, high moneyed world yeah. of of wealth, privilege, and royalty yeah. uh, was not. Uh, intended for humans. Yeah. Yeah, she was like brought into this and it kind of ate her. Yeah, she wasn't born into that Mm. life, which is hard enough as it is. Mm. She came into it from the outside and that is basically creating a form of systematic psychological abuse. If Blonde had depicted maybe Hollywood as this sort of like strange otherworldly place that eats people... Yeah. Which it does. That's fine. Yeah. But you need Marilyn's, to show how the mechanics work also. That also, they don't really do that. Marilyn's story extends to every facet of her life. It's not. It's Marilyn's life is now yeah. the, the place that causes suffering. Yeah. So it's not just Hollywood it, and Blonde. It, it's her mother. Like, it's all yeah, kinds of stuff. Be, I feel well like beyond that. Blonde, the movie is trying to depict a Marilyn Monroe who was born to suffer, yeah. like like a, this Christ-like figure was made to be sacrificed for us, the lascivious audience. And and again, that's. But that's also that's like, also a, that's also a dramatic oversimplification of. The audience for Marilyn Monroe, no, absolutely I think, and I don't is. think that's, and, and that's necessarily like, fair. The system that she was in, this very mm. uh, uh, this very sexist mm. uh, Hollywood system that she existed in, yes, agreed. Mm. That's, that's something to explore. But I don't think it actually understands the way that its machinations function, the way that Spencer understands the way that mm. British royalty functions. Yeah. And I think as a result, Spencer has a more complicated and interesting perspective. I would also argue that... Because Spencer doesn't show you Diana's death. Mm. It actually shows you the moment, basically, when she turned her life around and said no. Mm. And as a result, it's actually very celebratory of Diana, even though it is showing you many of her darkest moments. And as a result, the movie demonstrates a respect for the person or character, if you Mm. really want to insist on the fictional element. But I think if it can easily be interpreted as a biopic, we have to consider it as one. Uh, whereas Blonde doesn't have that. Yeah, there's no moment of triumph for Marilyn and Blonde. Yeah. Not a, even a before of, her death. Like it's just, it's mm. all even like her biggest successes mm. are depicted as stultifying, cruel, yeah. evil failures. It's uh, just some ugh. some critics I admire have called it one of the best films of the year, Blonde. And uh, I, I guess I can see uh, people reacting to its intensity. Sure. And I've, I've been thinking about it a lot. Yeah. Uh, just to see if there there was something in there, some concept or some notion well that, uh, that I should you know maybe hook into, something that people yeah. are getting that I'm not. Because I, I actually walked away really hating the movie. Yeah. For the, that very reason. It's, it's a lot of suffering for not a terribly sophisticated message. And I think in so doing, it's disrespecting what a well-rounded person we knew Marilyn to be. It's yeah. not like it was some sort of hidden secret. No, the movie uh, comes across like a hit piece, really. Yeah, like, yeah, like it's, we're it's, trying to take her down. Like, why? 
And, she's uh, got it hard enough as it is. She's still exploited almost like a hundred, no. like fifty years after her death for crying a- out loud. Another pseudo biopic came out earlier this year that announces itself right away, and you uh-huh. know what kind of fantasy you're living in, and that is Elvis, uh, the, Bos- seen Elvis. the Baz Luhrmann movie. But that's that's yeah. That is not all accurate to reality other yeah. than the colonel was a dick like he was sort of like the super villain in elvis life yeah 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 uh, but at the end of that movie i'm like yeah poor elvis like it actually made yeah. me feel sympathy for elvis it left out a lot of the dark stuff in elvis life mm-hmm. uh but it also showed how exploited he was and i feel like that uses a lot of fantasy elements and a lot of modern music and a lot mm-hmm. of modern sensibilities to tell a version of Elvis's iconography yeah. rather than tell like a straightforward biopic. Yeah. Uh, the more I think about Elvis, the more I like it. I, I need to see this movie. I need to sit yeah. down with it. I just haven't had the time. Elvis is yeah. far more enjoyable than Blonde. You know, you know there's a movie that uh, it takes enormous dramatic liberties with its subject's life and it is a biopic and it literally comes out and like walks up to the camera and tells you at the beginning and that's Man on the Moon. Or oh, Man yeah, in the yeah. Moon, sorry. Man, Man on the Moon. Is it Man on the Moon? Sorry, I always get that mixed up. Uh, Man on the Moon. It's the uh, biopic of uh, sadly short-lived comedian Andy Kaufman, uh, who, if you've never seen his work, my God, <laughs> what well, a weird genius he was. Uh, he, he was a comedian, uh, and you were the joke. Yeah. The audience was somebody who was watching you after the fact. Yeah. Like, seriously, <laughs> like he, he, he did comedy... That is operating on so many weird levels. I think even if people did his stuff today, people would be confused. Uh, but if you've never, if you're unfamiliar with it, I'm not going to tell you what it is. Just look up his his uh, Mighty Mouse routine. <laughs> it's so simple Before, and brilliant. Before that on uh, on Saturday Night Live. Yeah, was, he was one of the earlier cast members on Saturday Night Live, and he was he the did musical a, guest. It was the musical guest. Andy Coffin was hired as the musical guest for that episode. He wasn't the guest star. He wasn't oh the host. Oh my god, I forgot about that. Oh my god, that's so fucking weird. Anyway, look up his Mighty Mouse routine. I'm not going to ruin it for you. It's just fucking brilliant. Um, but um, and he, they did a biopic from a director, Milos Forman. Uh, Oscar-winning director, Milos Forman. He directed Amadeus and uh, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. And uh, it was starred Jim Carrey, and it was from the writers of really good biopics like Ed Wood and, and the People vs. Larry Flint, yeah. also directed by Milos Forman. And Man on the Moon, the writers openly talked about this. They said, um, you know, Andy Kaufman's life was oddly structured, and to tell it from beginning to end, you wouldn't have a satisfying dramatic mm-hmm. uh, uh, arc in the ways that you would want to in a screenplay. And they felt really hamstrung by that. There was like, well, we can't really tell the story accurately. We can't even do the thing. They can't even do the thing that they did with Ed Wood and uh, People vs. Larry Flint, which is mm-hmm. just pick a particular chapter from his story that find, does have yeah, a clean structure. There, yeah. yeah, like it's just basically like Ed Wood went from a filmmaker who couldn't get anything made and then had all of his movies brutally taken away from him, even though they stunk, but like still, he didn't get to make a movie <laughs> in his own terms. And then finally he did. That movie also stunk, but at least he got to do it his way. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Hill versus Larry Flint. But only you shut up and let me do it my way. <laughs> yeah, Larry Flint. Larry Flint is a sleazemeister. At least he was. He passed away. Uh, but he did accomplish a dramatic and landmark Supreme Court case that protects parody as free speech. Mm. And that is super important, and that is a good thing that came out of his life. And so they all folk, they structured the entire movie around that. For Andy Kaufman, his life was short, and he didn't really have that one 
particular chapter in it. And so what they said was, what would Andy Kaufman do? He'd, he'd change it. Yeah. <laughs> and so the opening is Jim Carrey as Andy Kaufman basically walking to the camera. I'm not going to do the voice because I can't do it. Right. Uh, he's doing one of Andy Kaufman's yeah. characters. Yeah, yeah, he says, I am here to tell you that this movie, which is about my life as Andy Kaufman, uh, is absolute baloney. Oh. They moved everything around for dramatic purposes. This is not all exactly oh. as it happened. Mm. And as a result, I have decided to cut everything that is inaccurate. The movie is over. Thank you for watching. And, and the they cr- play and the credits roll. <laughs> the credits roll. They don't have the temerity to roll the whole credits. No, uh, unfortunately, they, they kind of turn it into a gag. They but, go yeah. a little further than you might think. Yeah, yeah, but uh, but still, but that's a movie that tells you right off the bat: mm. this is a biopic. We have the best intentions at heart, but we do have to change some things in order to make it work yeah. as a story. Uh, b- before we uh, before we go, can I uh, share a little bit of trivia about Man on the Moon? Please. Um, the opening Universal fanfare in Man on the Moon uh-huh. is uh, it's not the usual Universal fanfare. No, what do they do? I don't remember it's this. it's a little like acapella arpeggio, like uh-huh. this little fanfare that they do. And it was performed by one of my favorite acapella groups. They're called the Bobs. Ah. And the reason they got the Bobs was because the Bobs actually did the songs for a documentary film about Andy Kaufman oh. called I'm From Hollywood. It was specifically about his oh, wrestling career. I, I saw that. I saw yeah, that Fred, documentary. Uh, yeah. yeah, Fred Blassie. And, um, yeah, that's... Wow. And they did... Uh, Several songs for this documentary film, which nobody saw. It's like this little underground, yeah. straight to VHS documentary film. You I'm pretty sure you can find it on like YouTube now. I'm pretty sure you can find it now. It's an interesting documentary. Yeah. Uh, and they, uh, the Bobs, wrote a song called "Andy Always Dreamed of Wrestling." Yes, for Andy that song. Always dreamed of wrestling. Uh, I remember I, well. I, I knew I had that song memorized before I even knew the film existed, <laughs> uh, because I, I I come in everything backwards, uh, and. Uh, I encourage our listeners to look up the Bobs. Please. They have 13 or so uh, studio records. I, I've listened. They've been going I, around since the night, uh, like 1983 they I, started up. Whitney has driven me around in his car on more than one occasion, and I have heard <laughs> the Bobs to, quite a few times. I, I love the Bobs. No, they're great. Yeah. I know. I, I, uh, did I ever I, complain? They're great. Uh, their earlier records, uh, I recommend My I'm Large and, uh, <laughs> and Songs for Tomorrow Morning. Those are excellent records. That's uh, great. Please listen to them. They were very influential in my life. That's wonderful. So please check that out. <laughs> Don't forget. Anyway, thank you everybody for listening. Thank you everybody for writing in. Really, really interesting prompts and questions. Uh, hopefully we did a decent job. Mm. Um, but uh, we always love hearing from you and just you mean the world to us. So thanks a million. Mm. Uh, if you want to write in for a future episode, our email address is letters at critically acclaimed.net. And Whitney, mm. just say what that address is for the P.O. Box. <laughs> it's the Critically Acclaimed Network, P.O. Box 641565, Los Angeles, California, 90064. Yeah, okay. I'll, I'll say it every time just for tradition's sake. At Thanks, this point, friend. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, uh, of course, uh, we're also on Twitter at Critical Claim. I'm at William Debiani. I'm at Whitney Seibold. Uh, if you want to listen to this episode ad-free or any of our future episodes ad-free, you can head on over to our Patreon. That's patreon.com slash critically acclaimed network. Any amount of money, $1 and up a month, will get you the episodes ad-free. But depending on what tier you're at, you also get a lot of other exclusive shows, including uh, commentary tracks. We just released a commentary track for John Carpenter's original Halloween. We have uh, online uh, uh, hangouts. We have a horror movie trivia night coming up uh, later this month that I'm very excited about. I'm writing the questions as we speak. Well, not this second, but, you know, today. Mm. Um, Let's see, what do we got? Uh, We have our, our, our Star Trek show, all our yesterdays. We review every single episode of Star Trek ever, one episode per podcast. We're well into the middle of Star Trek The Next Generation, and um, what do we got, like 
well over 100 episodes by now, right? Like oh, it's, it's a lot. A bunch. It, we have a yeah, bunch. It's a ton. Um, but uh, yeah, we have our Step Up podcast. We're a little behind on our Star Trek, or on, our, on our Oscars podcast. Yeah. But we need to get to that in the next week or so. Uh, and uh, yeah, just thank you everybody for being a patron. If it wasn't for you, this show wouldn't exist. And that means the world to us. So thank you for your support. If you can afford to support, we'd love to have you. And if not, thank you anyway. But please subscribe and leave us a review wherever you find us. That always helps a lot. So thank you again, once again, to everybody who wrote in and everybody who might write in someday. That makes sense, right? <laughs> yeah, no, it works. Yeah. Sincerely yours, Bibbs and Whitney. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? Hero Bread serves up 0 to 1 grams of net carbs, 5 to 11 grams of protein, and high fiber in every delicious serving. Made with natural ingredients, Hero Bread supports gut health, promotes weight management, and helps maintain blood sugar. Hero also drops other limited edition ultra-low net carb goodies like rich, flaky croissants and buttery brioche slider rolls. Head to Hero.co to shop today.